0: Hey people, happy new year and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Mauricio Magaldi, Global Strategy Director for Crypto at 11FS. This is episode 178, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host Kai Sheffield, Head of Crypto at Visa. Happy New Year, Kai. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. 2023 is going to be a good year. I'm I'm feeling good. I'm excited to get the show you know back up and. Uh, hopefully
0: it'll be very different than 2022 but we'll we'll get into that today. <laughs> Absolutely. This is an insight show so we want to kick off the new year by talking about what the future of 2023 might hold for us in crypto. Um, a lot happened in 2022. Can we expect the same or even more from 2023? Well, so to the listeners, join us while we talk through what we think will happen with regulations. DeFi, NFTs, and so much more. Will this be a pivotal year for crypto? So let's allow us to speculate. Before we dive in, just as a reminder, the views or opinions of our panel are their own and don't necessarily reflect those of the companies that they are representing. And as always, nothing we say should be taken as tax, financial, or legal advice. So do your own research. Continue listening to hear our predictions as well as maybe hear some of your own to get featured. Let's get started. So to kick it off, we want to take a look at our 22 predictions. So the show we did earlier last year and see what your mood, the audience mood is for 2023. So last year, our biggest predictions were, and I'm going to go through this, growth of fintechs into the crypto ecosystem. Um what role uh, open banking would have? Uh, we asked, are banking cards still going to be a thing? That was one. The second one was regulators. Did regulators skew the momentum in crypto in 2022? The next one was one chain to rule them all. And the big question was, was Jack Dorsey right to double down on Bitcoin? For NFTs, the next item was, did the NFT hype, you know, did it continue Or did it die? Did NFTs finally enter the mainstream? Did we see more cultural, ethnic, and gender diversity in the NFT world? And the last item was Web3 and the metaverse. Was it just a buzzword? Or did it grow on 2022? What happened with it? Did we see more people willing to understand um, and interact with the metaverse? Did we see more companies get into Web3, crypto, metaverse? So... Those were the big items. So Kai, of all of these things, so what do you think happened uh, in 2022? What did you see that either confirmed uh, or disproved uh, what our predictions were early last year?
1: Yes, yeah, so maybe we can go through one by one and can cover a few points on them. I think last year at, at this time, you know, there was this pretty strong narrative around the intersection of, of fintech and, and crypto. And how this this line is blurring between a fintech company and a crypto company. And, and I think it really started with seeing fintechs adding crypto into their core products. And so this is back you know, a number of years. I think Cash App you know, was the first. A, then we saw SoFi and Revolut and PayPal and Venmo. And so it seemed like it was starting to become you know, table stakes you know, for fintechs to add crypto trading. And then you also had a growing number of enablers, you know, companies like Paxos and ZeroHash and iDig, who are also continuing to advance their products to make it easy uh, for that to happen. And I think, you know, the, the case for every fintech to integrate crypto was very much first, I think, a case around trading and around engagement. And it was while we were at the the height of the bull market. It was why not add crypto and see if you can you know capture some of that excitement for customer acquisition, for customer engagement, and get them into your other products. Uh, and I think that that you know died down you know quite a bit in in 2022. And you know as enthusiasm towards trading and and as the overall prices and market came down, I would imagine that on many fintechs' priorities and and on their product roadmaps, they're like. What would, would adding crypto trading really move the needle you know, for us? And so I'd say that we didn't see nearly as many of those integrations of traditional fintechs adding crypto trading as, as we would have thought. You know, at this point last year, I think the other element in this trend was kind of the the concept of CFI and yield. And it's hard to like actually imagine. Think back a year ago, like interest rates were still you know very low. You know, in TradFi and you had crypto lending markets that were paying out 5 6 7 8% yields and so this became another you know exciting aspect that didn't as much get into mainstream fintech but there became this class of crypto lenders the BlockFi's, the celsiuses and they were you know acquiring customers with the promise of these high yields and now again what did we see in 2022 yeah, you know, I think that the combination of the macro environment, the combination of you know poor risk management and and defaults and, and many of the things that have blown up, and that's no longer a, a market. You know, if you say today, right now in 2023, what are CFI yields looking like? How many consumers are are trusting, you know, having funds that are you know earning yield based upon some of these uh, the the CFI products? Uh, and so I think overwhelmingly that intersection, specifically on trading. Uh, really did not play out the way that that we would have thought, you know. And it makes sense as as the market turned. I think the interesting question is going to be: Will that intersection end up happening more around payments than it does around trading? And will fintech say, okay, well, maybe there's some interesting things with stablecoins that we'll focus on rather than just we want to add Bitcoin, we want to add you know, CFI yields and, and other things like that. So, curious your, your thoughts on that that first bucket, Rusev.
0: Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think that the role of crypto in fintech during 22 was largely integrating as a new payment rail, right? Uh, the work you guys are doing with Visa is obvious. Stripe has moved the needle a lot in actually bringing um, USDC payment rails on Polygon to over 4 billion people now can be paid using that construct. Uh, we're seeing the... Um, emergence of Lightning Network in the Bitcoin world to become um, ever more present. So I think if we look into the convergence of fintech and crypto during the year, I think that is probably payments is probably something that has kind of found its place. And obviously we're going to see much more development on this uh, going forward because one of the questions we Uh, asked ourselves early on was, are banking cards still going to be a thing? The answer is yes, because these are various modalities of payments. We don't necessarily need to replace one for the other. We need optionality. And I think that's what we're seeing uh, emerge with uh, crypto as payment rails becoming a thing of an infrastructure. And again, it's it's not something that you would Maybe see a retail user uh, actually concerned about, but the whole infrastructure behind it is running on those rails, and it doesn't really matter as long as you know the job gets done. So I think that is probably something that was like if I'm gonna call it a winner of the year in in that space, probably uh, stable coins as means of payments uh, for sure.
1: Yeah, and and I'd add there like we haven't seen a slowdown in the interest and demand for crypto companies you know across different stages uh, to look at issuing cards and you know offering more traditional payment products. And I think it it makes sense, you know, as you have this this uh, momentum away from speculation and towards utility, you know, how do you make sure that your product you know can be useful and, and can expand into other use cases when volatility is is incredibly low, you know, prices you know, have not moved. There's just not this excitement for trading as the only reason to, to be in crypto. And so I think it makes sense companies in the space are looking at can stablecoins and, and payments you know, become a, a another product and vertical for them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, we did also uh, touch on uh, convergence of blockchains. Uh, there's the one chain to rule them all. And obviously the, the hot news was Jack Dorsey leaving Twitter to actually go into full-time Bitcoin. Um, and we have yet to see how the landscape for layer ones and layer twos is going to settle. Uh, I don't think this is at all defined in 2000, uh 2022 did not help in that regard. We did have some major milestones in some of the most important uh, blockchains like the merge uh, for Ethereum. Um, before that, uh, I think Taproot was one that came uh, early and then uh, we saw uh Terra Luna crack as a complete ecosystem um, with Cosmos still running uh, strong. And obviously, if I would take a blockchain as the clear winner for the year, I would say Polygon because the work that they are doing bringing brands into Web3 is remarkable. Uh, You can argue that they're buying their way into some of these things. I wouldn't dispute that. But the beauty of the game is that they were very well capitalized early in the year and then they pushed through the year doing a lot of building with brands that weren't familiar with the space and now are all in. Um, what do you reckon on the landscape for various layers on, on different blockchains, uh, Kai?
1: Yeah, so if if I recall, coming into the year, uh, there was a, a growing narrative around alternative layer ones. Uh, and you know we kind of had seen the first New blockchains emerging that were you know fast and cheap, uh, and so whether that was uh, Solana, whether that was Avalanche, uh, Binance uh, chain, whether it was yeah you know, the Terra Luna you know, ecosystem, uh, and so I think it was was very much you know uh, pretty widespread. You you had different camps with very strong beliefs. Uh, you had a lot of investment in this alt you know layer one you know, thesis, and and I think part of it was born out of a Ethereum's too expensive, you know, it's it's too slow. And like we've kind of seen this and in a bull market, like when, when gas fees were going to, to twenty dollars or to forty dollars. I think overall, objectively, it was a very good year for Ethereum. And the fact that Ethereum executed the merge, which is just an incredible technological achievement. That I think many people you know, would not have been surprised and, and were expecting it to continue to get delayed and pushed out. And it kind of became this thing of, oh, yeah, someday Ethereum will do it. The fact that they did it and that it worked, I think definitely brought more of a center of gravity back to the Ethereum ecosystem, as well as you know, when you're in a, a, a bear market and activity goes down, you know, gas fees, you know, not directly as a result of the merge, but no longer became this thing that, that everyone was focused on. I think Polygon had a, a fantastic year on the, the business development side and, and being able to attract brands and kind of become that you know alternative layer one to some extent uh, that was able to, to capture you know, a lot of the interest on, on faster and, and cheaper. Um, but I, I think it was really a win for the EVM uh, and kind of EVM becoming a, a standard and in, in really you know, getting more of a critical mass of, of developers and the excitement of Ethereum and the broader Ethereum ecosystem of which I'd argue Polygon is still you know within the orbit of of the Ethereum ecosystem. I think had a really strong you know 2022, uh, maybe at the expense of of some of the other uh, networks uh, that that really just. Yeah, we were very popular and hyped going into 2022, uh, but had challenges for a number of reasons.
0: Yeah, that kind of puts us on a very interesting, maybe potentially positive trend. But let's see what our listeners think about what's coming in 2023. We ran a poll on Twitter and a poll on LinkedIn, um, and we asked the audience how they feel about crypto in 2023, and the results are drastically different, right? On LinkedIn... For the optimistic answer is thirty-five percent versus sixty-five percent pessimistic. So LinkedIn is this business net, you know, social network, um, not necessarily uh, very crypto degenerate. So it's thirty-five optimistic against sixty-five pessimistic, which means LinkedIn folks um, are not exactly looking up to what's happening in in crypto, and on Twitter. We had ninety one point seven percent of people answering optimistic versus eight point three so it's it's the results are are in so what what do you think about this what why do you what do they tell us about the audience and what do they tell us about the outlook from the market
1: i I think for anyone who's spent time on both platforms, I think it's very clear that there are very different audiences there. Uh, I would imagine that on on Twitter and crypto twitter. There are people who've, who've probably been following the space, you know, for a longer period of time. And I'd say if they're still there at, at this point, because things, waves come and go. Like if you've been on crypto Twitter for a few years, like there's been not nearly as much activity lately as there were, was at the, the height of the bull market. So I think for the people who've remained in crypto, the people that have seen multiple cycles uh, and the people that are are really following, you know, the underlying technology. Uh, the people are that are in the weeds on on what's happening in the Ethereum ecosystem and how blockchains are are scaling and you know new features like account abstraction and and these things emerging. There's a lot to be optimistic about, you know, for the the mid to long term from a technology perspective. Um, I think on, on LinkedIn, it's. I would imagine it's not that people come and go to, to LinkedIn based upon you know, what's happening in the, the crypto market cycle, and I think from a just a, a PR and a, a public, if, if you're following crypto passively, you know, if you check in, you know, every month or so, if you listen to this podcast occasionally. Uh, there's no question, like things sound bad. <laughs> like there's like if you're just reading mainstream headlines and you're looking at, you know, some of the, the, the issues that have happened and the failures of exchanges and, you know, individuals and, and, and what people have, have done, it, it sounds very bad. And so I think that's where I'm not surprised to see this dichotomy of like, if you're viewing the space through the lens of, you know, kind of passively observing versus if you're in a developer community that's building you know some of the next-gen technology that's that's upgrading these blockchains you're gonna get you know, very very different views and I encourage everyone you have to spend some time on both you know I've been pushing myself to say I, I got to spend more time on LinkedIn because I spend way too much time on crypto Twitter I would also say for the folks on LinkedIn find some good follows of people on crypto Twitter follow 11fS you know, follow the blockchain insider and like There's a value in understanding the intersection
0: between the two. I I really like the audience on LinkedIn for one particular reason. I think innovation is a combination of creativity and skepticism. And the skeptics on LinkedIn make me want to study more. So (laughs) I know it's just bringing more work onto myself, but i think it's really important for us to address those um, those points uh, from the crypto skeptics because if we can turn a skeptic into a believer they will be adamant that these things solve the problems that they're seeing and you know me particularly being in the you know services business or where i'm a consultant these are very inspiring because this helps me shape my discourse it helps me shape my um, you know, framework it, it pushes me back into first principles, and and it's really helpful that we have access to that audience without necessarily being canceled. Uh, you know, hypothetically, so it, it's indeed uh, an interesting audience, and obviously, um, Twitter is the um, digital uh, you know town square, as as people say, and it's no different from uh, for 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 crypto and. I really believe that if you're into blockchain and into crypto and you want to see what's being actively developed uh, with a finger on the pulse and you're not on Twitter, you're missing out on a good chunk of the innovation that's coming our way. So I would also recommend a, a healthy blend of these two platforms. But, you know, thank you for the audience for uh, shining. and uh, you are listened, you are valued and uh uh, hope hopefully you can get more optimistic on, on LinkedIn can, as well. Can
1: we just say shout out to the informed skeptics? 2022 is a great year shout out. for the informed yes. skeptics. And it's hard to be a skeptic during the bull markets. 2021 would have been a terrible year because it's just hard to have your voice heard. But I think there were some great informed skeptics yeah. and it, that make the whole industry better. And I think the industry... Got some necessary humbling to the point where they're open to listening to skeptics because they're really good things to be skeptical you know, about. I think it's perfectly fair and there's a long way to go for the industry to to rebuild
0: we have yeah we have a lot to learn about ourselves by having that external lenses uh, you know shining the light on us but absolutely so that turns us into the next section, which is we're going to look into some of the things that we think are solid predictions for the year that is starting. So I'm going to go one and we can go into each one and we, we'll, we'll go from there. The number one prediction we pulled in was um, how will regulators deal with centralized crypto players and what are the key areas regulators will focus on? So this is a this is a big one. For me particularly, I've been working in, with the mind of how can regulators benefit from a decentralized infrastructure, which forces them to change the frameworks that they apply because the paradigm is no longer centralized, it's decentralized. Right. So what are your initial thoughts on this? Because it's not only how we regulate, it's also how we prevent fraud, which was a big theme in 22. How do we educate people to better use the infrastructure that's right now available to them? And how we, as an industry, improve the UX that will let that happen. What are your thoughts around this, uh, Kai?
1: So I think the, the first theme for me is, is I would expect to see increasing scrutiny on centralized exchanges. And not just from regulators, but from market participants, uh, from end consumers, uh, and from just market observers. And I think this is kind of what we've started to see over, over the past few months is a lot of, of new tools being built to really follow and track uh, exchange you know, addresses and, and exchange wallets. And so I think that's the first step of, you know, we went from a time where it was just, everyone would just trust to just say, oh, okay, this this exchange is is fine. I like the brand. I like the CEO. Now we're seeing real like, activity following everything that exchanges do on chain and i think that that's a, a good first step that that's you know productive for the space i think the question is where is this line between the you know amateur kind of twitter account that's following and and doing on chain sleuthing and looking at oh wait these cold wallets don't look right and what were these transactions Towards what should be, you know, the guidance and and the rules that that regulators require, you know, for these these exchanges, and and I think it's 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 such a complicated area. And even areas like like proof of reserves, which I think uh, it, it's been productive to see that become you know, more of a, a conversation. There's still a lot of questions around what are the right standards for it. Like, how do auditors manage it? How do you know like what the true liabilities are? And so I think a, a lot of these things, my my first expectation is it's not that there's going to be clear action that all of a sudden, like these new rules come in place. I think that there's going to be significant scrutiny in terms of monitoring and watching. And my hope is that, you know, we all as an industry and both the public and the private sector Take the time to figure out, you know, what should new rules be that can prevent things like this uh, from happening before. And in in the meantime, I, I think you'll see continued interest in you know self custody and self custodial uh, products, uh, particularly for institutions. You know, the idea of, of institutions you know trading across you know many different exchanges and having exposure using an exchange as a custodian versus being able to separate custodians you know from trading platforms and have market structure that looks more like traditional uh, asset classes, I I think that's another trend that that we'll see as well. And so uh, I think it's easy for a lot of people to say, okay, bad things happen, immediately the hammer's gonna come down, (laughs) there's gonna be legislation that we all... And you realize how hard it is for people to agree on like what are the right rules to put in place and it takes time for that to play out. Uh, but I think that the the increased scrutiny is is really the first step, and it's it's what you know, the industry needs to to try and prevent you know, things like this from happening. Yeah.
0: yeah, no, I I think I agree, and and I would add another thing that I think is going to start to become standard in the industry is more collaboration between the regulators, the agencies, and the crypto companies that are in this space, because there is very little that they can do as regulators to enforce some of these things without actual cooperation and coming up with things that actually work. Um, And I think it will start in specific jurisdictions. But if this is to become something that is valid uh, and would prevent regulatory arbitrage, it will have to come to a point where this is also a global collaboration. So Um, I think collaboration is is going to dictate uh, how much can be done for enforcement and and for um, actually adoption of those standards. Uh, Otherwise, it's it's really easy for crypto companies or crypto products just to lift and shift and go do something somewhere else where it's easier to manage things. And that's what we need to avoid if we are to have at some point a level playing field for everyone that wants to participate, uh, be it a company, be it, an individual uh, or regulator or crypto native. So I think this is a potential trend and, uh, and hopefully not the only, but one of the strong things we're going to see throughout the year. Um, number two, um, progressive regulators exploring uh, more of DeFi. We'll, we'll, we'll have DeFi sandboxes uh, becoming this thing. And, and the reason why this came up as a prediction is uh, the, the uh, recent progress in Singapore with the MAS participating in a DEFI, in a regulated DEFI pilot with DBS, um, SBI and uh, JP Morgan in doing a um, FX on-chain FX um, transaction with tokenized deposits and a bond trading uh, using web 3 credentials for identity and what happened there is and is this an indication of what's coming in terms of how regulators are going to explore these new avenues with the incumbents what what is your thought about this
1: yeah so so first I think the, the project guardian initiative that you refer to in, in Singapore is one of the most interesting things that happened during 2022, in terms of a, a big step of large institutions, large banks like JPM working with a central bank and actually using, you know, it was the on the Polygon, you know, blockchain using a, I think a fork of of Ave, and I think that we've seen now th- some of the core DeFi protocols have have become hardened over time. And through this this market turmoil, things like Uniswap and Aave and Compound they've continued to work, and I, th- I would argue they've continued to work you know fairly well. And so I think there's there's growing confidence and interest in them as you know real innovations uh, that could be adopted within you know TradFi. The challenges today, you know, right now, the only you know assets that are are really being used of them have been. You know, speculative you know tokens and the use case it's it's getting a loan so that you can you know buy more eth and go long on eth uh, and so I think that there's there's going to be a lot of activity you know from you know traditional financial institutions uh trying to figure out can you use these protocols but with you know real world assets and one of the biggest unlocks is can you actually bring some form of uh identity and and attestations of kyc into them and until that happens, you know, you're not going to see, you know, a lot of, of, of trad fi institutions experimenting. Uh, but I think it's, it's definitely a trend that it's, it's going to take a, a long time to, to play out. But it's a, a really good example of, you know, large finance, financial institutions are, are closely following and in, in getting sophisticated, like increasingly sophisticated about this space. Uh, and they're really looking at how they can use these protocols, but in a compliant way. Uh, and I think this kind of will go into the, one of the other you know, trends we could talk about. But I think even in the context of CBDC, the conversation is is widening to how can you use tokenized uh, assets, both tokenized versions of fiat currencies, as well as how can you tokenize real world assets? And to me, that's there are more innovative things that you can do there than just you know, try and create a digital version of cash for someone to buy their coffee, which isn't as much a problem that hasn't already been solved. Uh, and so I'd expect to see banks and central banks kind of really exploring institutional DeFi. Um, and I, I don't think 2023, you're, you're going to see like large scale commercial deployments, but I think you're going to see this kind of steady build of momentum with more pilots, more proof of concepts, more experiments, particularly with identity uh, and we could be at the point where 2024 2025 I, I think some of these things could actually you know materialize and, and become you know real real products
0: yeah I think I think the whole sandbox play uh, on the regulatory environment is a is really a smart way of actually fostering innovation and not every bank is JP Morgan that has like that big cash cannon to actually invest in some of these things. But if you have a state-sponsored or regulatory-sponsored program that will allow some of these incumbents to actually, you know, take a dip and see how these things play out with uh, what they know and what they don't know, and learn a little bit together and bring that knowledge uh, into the regulated space, I think it helps push the needle further and accelerate towards you know two to five year adoption of some of these things to their own benefit because I mean, DeFi lending is as as the IMF uh, mentioned in one of those reports last year, is the most uh, marginally efficient operation on lending in the, in the space. So everyone gains from it. The banks gain from it. The regulators do, and obviously the customers with 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 better rates. So I I am definitely looking forward to seeing more of that exploration on DeFi. Number three, more use cases for NFTs. So we saw a bunch of PFPs in the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, uh, there is a lot of uh, talk about the pushback from the gaming industry f- you know, to avoid using uh, NFTs to mark the digital assets there. Um, do you think that we'll see NFTs breaking out of this digital profile picture and becoming part of real economy, say, managing identity, like we're we're seeing with the uh, so-bound tokens, for instance, or becoming part of trade finance corridors with bill of lading being registered on NFTs, or even house deeds, uh, like uh, we saw uh, recently, uh, they're starting to move towards that in some countries, including uh, in Latin America, say Colombia and Brazil, uh, using that for registration. What is your perception that what happens with NFT in twenty three?
1: So I think first you know for the 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 LinkedIn crowd NFTs are surprisingly have been surprisingly resilient and there's a lot more activity happening in NFTs than most people who aren't actively following it probably realize and I was just looking at some some numbers uh, last night and realizing like at the peak of the bull market in the kind of jpeg you know mania you know, there were about 700,000 unique NFT trades that happened, you know, per week. Uh, and so that that was kind of, you know, that's when people were spending millions of dollars on on, on board apes. You know, what we're seeing now is there are about 560,000 NFT trades per week. And so it's not like this is people have 90%, 99% of NFTs are like down. There's still a lot of activity. And I think the difference is, it's just another level of, of, of volume and, and prices, which actually makes sense. You know, At that peak, you know, the average trade size was $3,000. That was like an average NFT that someone was buying was $3,000. Now the average trade size, $350. That makes a lot more sense. That's a, a lot more like commerce. And so, yes, the volume is down because a lot of it's denominated in ETH. The price of ETH has decreased. But there's still a lot of activity. And I'd argue it's, it's been a fairly sticky industry. I, I think the other area we've seen is this shift to, to cheaper networks like Polygon that we mentioned earlier. You know, we are looking at the, the addresses that have owned on Polygon, that have owned an NFT, are up 500% you know, in 2022. And so now there's over estimated 20 million unique addresses on Polygon that own an NFT. You know, Reddit alone, I think, is at five or six million right now. And so that's starting to become a a real customer base. and, And that's a faster, cheaper network that, you know, NFTs really at scale did not exist on, you know, in 2021. And then we see it's getting easier to create NFTs. And so if we look at wallets that have actually deployed an NFT contract, Uh, So this could be, you know, an individual artist, this could be a project It's actually going through and deploying, writing a smart contract, ERC-721, and and deploying it. And in 2021, there are only about 15,000 wallets that deployed an NFT contract. In 2022, there were 60,000. And so we've seen artists actually moving from, you know, if you mint an NFT through OpenSea, it's like the OpenSea storefront contract. So that's one. Versus if you go through Manifold, you have artists that are actually owning their own contract and learning to go through and deploy their own contract, which is another big trend that we're seeing. And so I think first, like just the fact that there's still a lot of activity uh, is is something that's worth watching, you know, considering everything else around the crypto just not happening. I, I think before we get to non-commerce, uh, non-culture use cases, real utility, in the sense of, you know, property deeds. I think think we're still several years away from that. I think there's a lot of room to run on commerce gaming avatars and and PFPs. I think the difference will be, as well as loyalty programs, the difference will be, do consumers explicitly know that they're holding an NFT? And what does the wallet infrastructure look like? And so I think it'll be less everyone is downloading MetaMask and getting sophisticated around how to actually trade these and more that you'll see solutions like Web3 Auth that are integrated into existing apps that then enable a merchant to offer some NFT-related product. And that might not be worth hundreds or thousands of dollars, but it could just be a cool membership card that makes a customer feel special. And I feel like we forget about like one of the value propositions and, and things that's really unique is how do you bring some type of consumer delight? And in what ways does crypto bring consumer delight? Other than number going up in a bull market, which is a kind of a different type of delight, like there haven't really been that many. And NFTs are the first time where like, you could show a cool visual thing to a consumer that they own, whether it's a game item or a loyalty card that might make them feel more special. And if they feel a little more special, maybe they're more likely to purchase. Maybe there is some benefit that they get from it. Um, And so I I think there's going to be continued experimentation, you know, brands both on the apparel side, following Nike's lead, on the loyalty side, following Starbucks' lead, um, and on the avatar side, following Reddit's lead. And the last thing I'll say is, like, people don't realize, like, Instagram is doing NFT sales. Instagram did an NFT sale on Saturday. It sold out in 11 seconds. Like, there is activity happening in some of these small pockets that I think will continue to see experiments that you know has a lot of room to run you know in 2023, independent upon you know what the market cycle is. A lot of times, because it's shifting to cards and to fiat and not you know people having to buy ETH before they buy NFT. I
0: was yeah, I was gonna go into that because I think uh, if I can look to 22 and look at what um, MoonPay did to facilitate NFTs uh, across the board. I think that's one thing to really propel is the ease of use. Like we're talking about UX, 100% is the, the challenge of buying an NFT is having to go through these hoops to get the wallet you know, funded and then go do that. MoonPay just crossed all of that with, with, a, with a better user experience all in all, which I think will propel the continuation of all of these uh, traditional, if I can say that, for NFTs, um, for, th- for this space. And the enterprise is starting to delve into some of these alternative um, standards, like the 1155, which is a newer standard, uh, like a hybrid NFT of sorts, to explore uh, other use cases that will require uh, that sort of thing. So looking forward to that. Uh, We're going to take a break now to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like Fintech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at Visa.com forward slash crypto. So welcome back. We're still running predictions. Uh, we're going to go to number four, which we alluded in the previous section, but uh, let's go a little deeper into this. So CBDCs and stablecoins. Uh, do we think CBDCs are going to continue to look for product market fit? I mean, there's so many projects around the world. Do we think that stablecoins are going to come into some form of regulation in a specific jurisdiction? How does that would transpire for the rest of the world? Uh, And are we going to see maybe a consolidation of CBDCs at major payment rails, uh, as as we uh, saw um, hinted at, during uh, twenty two, So what are your initial thoughts on, on um, CBDCs and stablecoins? Is this still uh, a single pie for the both of them that we're going to see shift from side to side until someone wins?
1: So I think first on CBDC, I think we're still in this transition phase from research towards like practical pilots, proof of concepts, implementations with, you know, in, at a very, very small you know, scale. And so, I expect to see more of that in in 2023, um, where it's you know, central banks looking to, to partner with the private sector and looking to create okay, what are what are the use cases? I think there's still this search for what's the, the killer use case for CBDC? Like, what problem does it does it really solve? Uh, and so, I think we'll see plenty more you know pilots and and sandboxes uh, that are there. I think we've seen more momentum a bit shifting back towards wholesale. Uh, I think that we saw a lot of interest in, in retail. And then you know, I think as central banks got into it, there, there were a lot of challenges and unanswered questions. And wholesale in, in a way can be kind of a, a, a lower hurdle uh, in terms of not changing, you know, not as big of a structural change, but more of how do you leverage distributed ledgers and blockchains and, and have you know more advanced technology around bank to bank payments. Uh, more experiments around you know cross border and as we mentioned before you know things like permissioned you know defi i think we'll also see more of a discussion around tokenized deposits and this question of i i i see it broadly as like the the core question that matters is what do fiat currencies look like in 5 years like what are what are the future of fiat currencies and if you're going to upgrade a fiat currency there are going to be a number of different paths that you can take. There is, you know, on all the way on one end of the spectrum, you know, CBDCs, Central Bank, you know, does everything. And, you know, they're the expert, you know, they build technology, they deploy it, you know, they operate it. And they're, they're upgrading their own fiat currency independently. And then market, you know, you need to find a way to, to deal with it. Then there's the far right, which is, you know, the private sector and stable coins just saying, hey, we're going to innovate. We're going to create these new tokenized forms of fiat. We're going to find a bunch of product market fits and use cases that, you know, they apply to. We're going to experiment with a bunch of competing rails. Uh, and we're going to, you know, do our best to do it under a regulatory structure that we hope that will, will come into place. But there are gray areas uh, today. And then in the middle, there are all, all these banks saying, like, you don't want to just have – innovation happening, you know, with fintechs on the perimeter, like, can you create this form of a tokenized deposit? You know, can you actually have, you know, a legal representation of a deposited bank that can be issued on a blockchain that can have certain properties that stablecoins have? And so I think we're going to see continued growth on the far side with stablecoins, you know, scaling and finding more product market fit and use cases. We're going to see continued experimentations, you know, on the central bank side, and then we're going to see a lot of interest in kind of what role can banks play and what do we do with, with tokenized deposits in the middle. And, and I think for both tokenized deposits and CBDC, it's still going to take years to play out. We're not like one to two years away from these things being deployed at scale, uh, but I think there'll be meaningful progress in, in 2023. And then in general, my, my mental model for stablecoins and kind of where stablecoins can can start to get more adoption Outside of, of kind of pure crypto, is I see like 2023, 2024, the first use cases are gonna be you know really back-end or kind of new payment flows like B2C disbursements. You know we saw that with Stripe, you know, they launched their initial Stripe Connect that you mentioned, yeah, you know, where Twitter can pay out Twitter creators and a bunch of countries dispersing USDC. I think that's going to be an early use case you see a lot more of in 2023 that starts to find some product market fit. And then how do you use stable coins to settle transactions underneath existing rails? We've been experimenting with that. Checkout.com has announced, you know, they've been settling with some merchants. And so these are not, you know, the, the really sexy you know, consumers like directly where it's really using stablecoins and blockchains as rails that can improve, you know, processes for some of these payments. Then I think we'll start to see 2024, 2025, more things like P2P remittances. As you have better wallet tech that's easier to manage, as you have better on and off ramps, it could be useful for cross-border remittances. We haven't seen that at scale yet. uh, I think that there's potential, but there are some things that have to be solved. And then you get to 2025, 2026, then you could start to see. All right, will there be use cases where consumers, you know, pay a merchant, you know, with a stablecoin? There's just there's a long way to go, and and frankly, like there, it doesn't exist today in terms of real traction of consumers paying merchants. Uh, and so I think we're gonna go through those cycles of stablecoins as back end payment infrastructure, some consumer facing P two P, and then some C two B, particularly with a, a focus on emerging markets. And so, anyone who's here thinking like this is going to just immediately happen and change the world—it's—it's going to take time. And so, you know, we're here; we're committed to building for the long term. And I think many of the other payment companies in the space are are doing the same.
0: Yeah, one one trend that I think is going to continue as global economic uh, scenario degrades with higher interest rates, you know, worse volatility on on emerging currencies is that type of flight to quality for those who can and opt in to carry say a dollar stable coin uh which is much more immediate use and there's a lot of flexibility rather than just dollars um in the countries that really are going to suffer with their own currencies devaluing against global currencies and the interest rates in their countries being more punitive along with inflation so um we saw that in the second half of the year um, of 22 and I think we're going to continue to see that. but I'm with you. I don't think we're going to see a major deployment of a CBDC um, just yet because not only it's still very fragmented, but I don't think they found the killer use case that says we need we can't put our money into this and force a whole economy to migrate into this, not just yet. So I think we're, we'll still um, we'll still see some experimentation in that space. But for for the stablecoin side of things, agree with you. Boring is boring is fun. <laughs> boring is fun. We're going to see more infrastructure being around stablecoins as they get more popular. They will probably also be more regulated. Um, Circle last year I think applied for a charter license in the U.S. Uh, and that's probably going to start to speak uh, closer about. Um, tokenized deposits especially coming from some of the top companies in the space uh and the stable coins which is which is circle we'll see um, let's move to prediction number five which is uh, a little bit on um, an ecosystem that we um, have not yet discussed a lot but it's obviously one of those that we probably should which is Bitcoin so we're seeing uh in the recent uh, in the recent times uh, is uh, Bitcoin gaining more presence in payments with the uh, Lightning Network. Uh, we we also saw uh, some of the big names in Web2, David Marcus, coming out of uh, Meta to actually start LightSpark, which is building on top of Lightning Network um, real-world utility, as, as they want to call it. We have also RSK, we have Stacks. There's a whole bunch of uh, new, and I want to call layer 2, programmable layer 2s on Bitcoin that use Bitcoin as the settlement layer. Um, and this is a promise that has not yet been fulfilled by Bitcoin at large. What do you think we can expect from the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem in that end? I mean, I know there's the whole discussion about you know the prices and everything, but I, I think that if, if Bitcoin really wants to be that ecosystem that becomes the money of the future there's got to be more utility coming out of that ecosystem for everyone to build upon what are your thoughts on this
1: it's a great question so i i have not followed it super closely and so i am i'm by no means an, an expert on the latest uh things happening in the bitcoin ecosystem i'd say lightning there's no question lightning is is an interesting technology um, and it seems to be working you know fairly well in terms of you know, you can make lightning payments. You know that are are fast and and cheap. Uh, I think I think just the question is, does it move beyond you know some niche use cases? And so we've seen products like Strike uh, that has you know, enabled you know lightning tips on on Twitter. Uh, part of the, the the challenge is you know compared to other you know, layer one you know blockchains, you can't really see what what the volume is. Were people using that on Twitter? I think that's the open question. Of like, I, I I tried it out once. I was like, this is cool. Like, I could send someone like a, a few sats, but I I never used it again. Uh, and so I think that's that's kind of the challenge that that some of the use cases for Lightning has is that like it works, but we haven't seen a critical mass of consumers. And, and I think part part of the question is, are these going to be consumers that are explicitly holding Bitcoin? And they've adopted Bitcoin, they believe in Bitcoin, you know, they want to use Bitcoin as a store of value, um, or maybe you know they're in a country that has, has decided to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender, and then Lightning becomes a payment network by which they're spending Bitcoin. Or is Lightning a, a back-end money movement technology, which I, I think some of the latest work that Strike has done has been, you know, you can hold fiat, and then they'll convert your fiat you know, into Bitcoin over Lightning, send it over Lightning, and then convert it back. Then you have multiple hops, multiple conversions. There's some challenges around that, and so I, I think it's still very much in, in a period of of discovery. I, I haven't seen like scaled use cases, you know, of Lightning yet, but I I, I wouldn't count it out. I, I think it's just the the question is how will it compete with stablecoins running on top of of next gen layer twos, and you know, will there be a a stablecoin that that happens on on Lightning? Yeah, you know, I know that there's been some protocol you know, improvements that could enable that, and so I, I think that there there are interesting things you know, happening from the technology side, but we're still waiting to see what what gets adopted. And then, you know, for Bitcoin outside of Lightning, it seems to be it's 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 really more of like a a political or a geopolitical uh, question around you know what other governments and states do and. Um, you know, do you know, we saw the Central African Republic uh, in 2022 lean in and, and start to adopt Bitcoin? Will other states uh, do that? Um, but I guess my my own personal i've I've been more excited by you know, some of the activities in in the technologies and, and innovation in the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, more optimistic around DeFi and and some of the payment use cases that are emerging there. Then you know Lightning, I, I think, has has just has less functionality than than some of the other you know, networks do, and and the question is what, how does it ultimately win over use cases that you know you could theoretically do on an Ethereum zk Rollup layer two.
0: Love it, yeah. I'm 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 still studying and researching, but I think uh, to honor the uh, to fulfill the mission, I think it it will have to see more coming out of more innovation coming out of that ecosystem uh, to fulfill that mission. So fingers crossed. Uh, we did have a prediction number six here that we're not going to talk about. Uh, we'll, you guys are going to have to wait for <laughs> for the next uh, piece of content on this. But uh, yeah, uh, that kind of wraps up today's discussion. Uh, however, uh, we'd like to keep this going and continue the conversation over uh, on our socials. If you haven't let us know already, we'd love to hear what predictions you have for crypto in 2023, and why. So thank you all uh, to our listeners for joining us. Uh, Kai, where can people find more about you and what you're doing?
1: On Twitter at Kai Sheffield, and you know, potentially more often on LinkedIn in, in 2023. We'll, we'll see if I can follow through with that. Uh, and Visa.com slash crypto.
0: Love it. You guys can find me on 0x Mauricio on Twitter. 11FS.com, and Mauricio Magaldi on LinkedIn. So thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. This year, we have so much in the works, and we're starting off with a bank. Starting Wednesday, January 18th, we're launching a new series over on our sister podcast, Fintech Insider, in collaboration with Visa. Tune in on Wednesday for our very first episode of Fintech Insider Focus where we'll be taking a deep dive into the global potential of open finance. We put together a panel of experts to really dig into the question. Can open finance ever be truly global? So be sure not to miss it out. If you can't wait until then, or the next episode of Blockchain Insider, take a look at the many, many previous episodes and get yourself properly immersed in the world of crypto. And if you really love it, please leave us a review. It helps us make it better and helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or Blockchain Insider, or email us at podcasts at 11fs.com. This is all for today. Stay rare, stay weird. LFG.